Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. I've got a confession to make to you. And this is a really big deal because this might affect how some of you view me. And so I'm going to trust that this is a group of people that are filled with a lot of grace. Okay, we good? Here's my confession. I don't like tent camping. I don't like it at all. I remember a few years ago, Haley wanted to go tenting. I call it tenting because you go camping in a camper. And so we decided we were going to go tenting. And, you know, in South Alabama, there's maybe two weekends where you can go sleep in a tent and actually enjoy the weather because it's either blazing hot or it's 40 degrees and it's raining. And so we decide that we're going to go with some friends and we pack up all the stuff and it takes us almost two hours to set up this tent. I mean, it should not take that long when you're talking about a piece of fabric and about 12 poles. But to be honest with you, we bought the, or I bought the biggest tent we could find because you got to have enough room for the air mattresses for everybody. You got to have enough room for all of the stuff. You got to have enough room for the TV, for the portable air conditioner. Just kidding about the air conditioner. I couldn't find one in time. But it took us forever. And we had. I guess, an okay experience. We went two other times, and then we bought a camper, and it's been awesome since then. Now, I know some of you, after the service, you're going to come up to me, and you're going to tell me about all these experiences, about how you went hiking in the woods, and all you took was your tent, and you slept under the stars, and you roasted your food over the fire, and you almost got bit by a snake, and you almost died three times, as though that's some sort of enjoyable experience. It's like the closer you get to death, or the more miserable the experience, the better the trip that it was. And that's fine if, if that means I've got to surrender my man card right now, I will, because while you're eating Vienna sausages around a fire, I'm going to go sleep in the camper that's got four walls, an air conditioner, and a real toilet, and I'm going to make some chicken nuggets in the air fryer that I brought as well. Now, I tell you that because in John chapter 7, where we're going to be this morning, there was what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus couldn't go back to Judea because they were threatening his life. And so it was the time for the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's talk about what that means. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three main Jewish pilgrimage feasts. It means that all the Jewish males, according to the law of Moses, were required to go back to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate these different feasts. And the cool thing about these feasts is they really went along with the Jewish agricultural cycle. And so you had Passover, which was the first one that really began their new year. And it was in the springtime and they would celebrate the springtime harvest. And then 50 days later, about seven weeks later, they would travel back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And that was the time where they would celebrate kind of the summer harvest. And then a little while later in the fall season, they were going to travel back to Jerusalem where they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's where they would celebrate the harvest, the fall harvest, where they're getting fruit off of the trees and off of the vines. And what they would do is they would live in these tents for a week. It was a really intense kind of week, if you get what I'm saying. And so they live in these tents for a week out in the fields or scattered around the city. And part of it was because they would actually live out in the fields where they would kind of watch over their crops and they would make sure that they were okay. But they're also remembering the time that 
their ancestors were wandering through the wilderness after they fled Egypt and on their way to Mount Sinai and on their way to the promised land. And then even after the 40-year period of wandering, after they don't trust God and don't believe that God will lead them into the promised land and God punishes them with a 40-year road trip and they're just wandering around the desert, they're living in tents this entire time. And they're remembering how God provided for them. And they're celebrating God's providence and provision over their life. There's a lot that's going on in the Festival of Tabernacles. It was a really exciting time to be in the city of Jerusalem. And so what the disciples said right at the beginning of John chapter 7 is they said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, you ought to go into the city. It's time for tabernacles. You ought to go into the city and show everybody all of these things that you're doing. Because if the idea is to get more people to follow you and more people to believe, then why not perform some of these signs in the city when there's thousands and thousands of people there? But Jesus knows what will happen when he goes into the city. He can't because they're threatening to kill him. And so he has to move around in secret. And that might be one of the most heartbreaking thoughts to ever consider. John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is God become flesh. God, the creator of the world in the body of Jesus, is having to move around in secret because his own creation is seeking to kill him. But that might just make you love him even more that he was going to give up his life at exactly the right time because he knew his time wasn't here yet. And so about middle part of the week through this Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus actually goes into the city and he doesn't announce his arrival and he makes his way into the temple courts and he stands up and he begins teaching the people in the temple courts. So the religious leaders, it doesn't take them long to find out, they head to the temple and they start challenging Jesus. They ask him a series of questions in John chapter 7. The first question they ask him is, Jesus, where did you go to school? Who's your rabbi? Because the more successful, the more prominent your rabbi was, the more prominent you would be as a rabbi yourself. And we kind of play that game, don't we? When people ask, you know, did you go to college? Oh, well, where did you go to college? And depending on where you went, it might hold more weight than other schools that some of us went to, right? And so we go, oh, wow, that's really impressive. You went to this school and I only went to this school. And that's exactly what's going on. They want to know, Jesus, who's your rabbi? And you want to know who he responds? God. God is my rabbi. And so they're having a hard time with that. And so they ask him another question. They said, well, where are you from? Because we know the Messiah. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the Messiah. We have no idea where the Messiah is going to be from. But we know where you're from. You're from Nazareth. You're from Galilee. You're, you can't be the Messiah. And really, they knew where the Messiah was going to come from because the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures kind of spelled out where the Messiah was going to come from. But they missed it. And Jesus actually says he came from the Father. He came from heaven. And then the third question they asked him is, well, where are you going? Because Jesus told them, I, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me. They said, where are you going? He's going to heaven. And right after that, they want to arrest him right there on the spot and try to kill him. But Jesus just moves in a way that nobody touches him because John says it wasn't his time yet. The other really fascinating part of the Feast of Tabernacles was every day at the temple, they would offer different sacrifices, but they also had this ceremony called the water pouring ceremony. And every day, the priest, along with this crowd of people, would leave the temple courts. They would head to the south side of the city. They would go straight to the Gihon Spring, and the priest would carry a golden pitcher. 
And he would fill this golden pitcher of water from the Gihon Spring. And as he's filling the pitcher of water, the crowd is uh, chanting Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would head back toward the temple. They would go through what's called the water gate. And as they're going through, there's another priest who is uh, carrying a trumpet-like instrument called a shofar. It's really just a ram's horn. And he would blast the shofar and the crowd would be chanting and cheering. And in their right hand, they would be holding what's called a lulab, which is a, a branch from a palm tree. And in their left hand, they would be holding what's called an entrog, which is the citrus fruit you see on the screen. And they're carrying these and they're shaking the palm branches in the sky and they're holding up this citrus fruit, celebrating the harvest that's come from the trees and from the vines. And they're singing the Psalms of Hallel, these hallelujah Psalms, these Psalms that praise God. In our Bibles, it's Psalm 113 through 118. And there's this whole procession of people being led by this priest who's carrying this golden pitcher full of water and they're headed back to the temple and this crowd is singing and they're shouting and the ram's horn is being blasted and they're shaking the lulab and they're holding up the introg and it's this great celebration and processional headed back to the temple and when they get to the temple and they finish singing Psalm 118 the crowd shouts out give thanks to the Lord give thanks to the Lord give thanks to the Lord and then the priest would, descend, would ascend the steps of the altar and he'd go to the top of the altar and he would pour out this golden pitcher filled with water as an offering to God. Now they live in the desert. There is no water. They're also in a season of drought during this time of the year. And this procession, this ceremony is designed as a prayer. It's the people pleading to God, God, please send us your life-giving water. We need water to survive. We need water to come and refresh the land. And we need water to come and to refresh us and to refresh our livestock so that we can continue to survive. But it's also a prayer remembering the time that when they were, their ancestors were traveling through the wilderness, that God on two separate occasions provided water from them miraculously from the rock. And it's also a reminder of these visions that you see in Isaiah and Zechariah, where from the temple, there is this water flowing out of the temple. And it's a messianic promise. It's this beautiful vision of in the future that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be water that's going to flow from God's temple, almost like it did in the Garden of Eden, where there was water coming out of the Garden of Eden that fed the land and provided life for everyone. And that's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. He's going to send water out of the temple and it's going to flow through the city. And there's going to be plenty of water for everyone. We won't have to worry, is God going to send rain? How are we going to survive till the next rain? This ceremony captured into all of that is this beautiful symbol, this beautiful prayer and plea to God on behalf of the people to please send water, please revive us. And it was also a reminder to them of the spiritual revival that they needed to undergo as well. Well, on the last and great day of the feast, which is what John tells us is when this next scene happens, that's the last seventh day of the feast. What they would do on that day is they would perform this water pouring ceremony, not once a day, but seven times on the seventh day. 
And so seven times they would head out of the city to the Gihon Spring, chanting Isaiah 12 and verse 3. The priests would fill the pitcher of water. They would come back to the temple courts, singing the Psalms of Hallel, shouting, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And then he would pour out the water and they would head out of the city again. And I believe in my mind, John doesn't tell us, but knowing Jesus who loves a great object lesson and loves a moment that no one will ever forget, on the seventh time, at the end of the seventh trip, when the priest is pouring that water and the crowd is shouting and they're feeling all of this anticipation and excitement, Jesus stands up and he says where everyone can hear, if any of you is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And you got to wonder what's the priest doing as he's pouring out this water and this rabbi starts shouting for everyone to hear. You could have heard a pin drop. All the eyes turn to Jesus. They go, what does this mean? And what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is everything that you are doing points to him. He's inviting these people, just like he did in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, do you remember, where he told her she's come to draw water, and he said, if only you knew the gift that I could give to you, I can give you living water. It's the same invitation that Jesus is offering. And what he's saying is your prayer for living water, this desire for God to revive the land and to revive you, it's all fulfilled in me. Your desires of life, of finding that life-giving water can be fulfilled in me. It's this beautiful invitation that Jesus is offering to them. They were looking and longing for life-giving water, and Jesus says, if you're thirsty, just come to me and drink. You know, we go a lot, we go a lot of different places looking for life, don't we? Looking for something that will make us feel like we're really living. Some of us have gone to relationships. We feel like that's the place where I can go, that I can feel like I'm truly living. Others of us, we kind of pour ourselves into our job. We think that's our identity. That's who we are. That's where I'm really going to find life, and I'm going to reap some kind of reward for that. Others of us, we go into our hobbies. We just live for the weekend. We live to get to do what we really want to do, and that's where we pour ourselves into, and we think this is what truly gives me life. For some of us, we're looking to social media to try to be validated in, and reaffirmed in our life and in our views. And we're looking for the likes and the approval of other people. For some of us, we're looking to something like travel. Can I go somewhere, have an experience, go to this place, enjoy this moment, go to this sightseeing place, and that's what's going to really give me life. But here's what you've learned and here's what I've learned. Every time you experience one of those, it's not a life-giving well because it leaves you thirsty for more. You have this experience and then you want to try to up it with the next experience because it, it can't truly give you what you think it's going to give you. And so you move from one thing to the next, just searching for life. You hear the invitation of Jesus? He said, if anyone is thirsty, if you're looking for life-giving water, just come to me and drink. But look at what John says. 
After Jesus stands up and makes this statement, inviting all people to come to him, and by the way, he connects uh, this life-giving water with believing in him, surrendering your trust and allegiance over to him, which has been the whole theme of the Gospel of John that we've been looking at so far. Look at what John says. John is now going to give us some commentary after Jesus' statement ends. John is going to tell us what Jesus is talking about. We didn't get that in John chapter 4 when Jesus invited the Samaritan woman to experience the same life-giving water. And now he's going to tell us this is what Jesus means. What Jesus was referring to, this life-giving water, is actually talking about the Holy Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, but they haven't yet because the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what John tells us is this life-giving water that Jesus is offering is actually the gift of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't understand that. And the disciples didn't understand that for a little while. And they're trying to figure it out. What in the world is he talking about life-giving water? And John says, I don't want you to miss what he's talking about here. This, this is an invitation to experience the Spirit of God in your life. Now, we have the privilege of reading the rest of the Bible. And what we know is in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, at Pentecost, you remember the one that celebrated the spring, or excuse me, the summer harvest? Peter and the other disciples stand up and they preach and proclaim in the name of Jesus. And they invite this crowd to give their lives to Jesus. And when they cry out, what should we do? Peter said, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just like they had at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. They're huddled together in this room and all of a sudden they hear this wind rushing in and they're overtaken and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and it grants them power and wisdom and boldness to proclaim the message of Jesus. Peter said that same gift is available to you. Jesus, in John 7, as the priest is pouring out this pitcher of water, says that same gift is available to you. And so I don't want you to miss this. It's by believing in Jesus that you will receive the Holy Spirit into your life. What does it mean to believe? It means to surrender your trust and allegiance over to Jesus. It's not just, I've said this week after week, it's not just knowing something in your mind. It's pledging your life and your entire will and your entire being over to Jesus. It's surrendering your will and your allegiance to him as the king of your life. And what he will call you to do is to surrender your life to him, to repent of your sins, and then to obediently go to the waters of baptism where you're immersed into that water and you're raised to walk in newness of life. And the promise that God makes to us, the promise that Jesus is making is when that happens, you can receive God's life-infusing spirit into your life. And that's really important. And maybe you're thinking like I did at some point in my life where I said, you know, I don't really understand the Holy Spirit. What's the big deal? The Holy Spirit's kind of like this mysterious thing. And sometimes we get a little anxious talking about the Spirit and what the Spirit does and what the Spirit doesn't do. And it makes us a little anxious, some of us, to think about what does the Spirit of God actually do in your life? There are many, but I'm going to give you four this morning. The first one is the Holy Spirit will give you new life. And that's exactly what you need Because as the Bible talks about in places like Ephesians 2, what sin has done in your life is sin has robbed you of life. It has taken it from you. And as a result, it's left you with death. And you're doomed to die in your sins. It was the punishment that God gave all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. That's what sin has done to us. It's taken our life from us. 
where we can never truly live the way that God wants us to until we are reinfused with the life-giving spirit. And there's this awesome verse in Romans chapter 8 where Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. It's this promise and this beautiful image that when Jesus was laying in the tomb after being dead for three days on that Sunday morning, which we're gonna celebrate here, we do it every week, but in two weeks when we gather together for Easter Sunday and we celebrate the day that Jesus walked out of that tomb early that morning before sunrise, when Jesus' lifeless body was laying on that stone, what happened is the Spirit of God, just like it did in Genesis chapter one, invaded the body of Jesus and it breathed life back into him. And you can almost see this lifeless, inanimate body lying there on this stone slab. And when the Spirit of God animates him, he breathes life again. He sucks life into his lungs and his eyes open and he wakes up and his heart is beating. And he's not only a living being, but a spiritually revived being. And Paul writes, just like that, the Holy Spirit can breathe life into your mortal body so that when your life here on earth ends, your life is just beginning in glory. And there is the hope of that resurrection that we will all experience one day when we are fully raised to life with God for all of eternity. And the moment a sinner goes down into that water of baptism, that same spirit invades your soul. It permeates into your life and breathes life back into you. It's a beautiful promise that the spirit does for us. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit will make you more like Jesus. That's what the fruit of the spirit is all, of the, all about. These fruits of the spirit that line the walls of our auditorium, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the fruit of the spirit. And when the spirit of God comes into your life, it will make you live and look more like Jesus. And if you look at all of these characteristics and qualities, these, this fruit of the spirit, it's just describing Jesus. Jesus was gentle and faithful and filled with joy and patient and loving like no other human being we've ever experienced. And what the Holy Spirit is offering to you and I is that we can become just like Christ. We can live like Jesus. And when people see us, they can experience gentleness like never before, patience like never before, a kind of love and joy and goodness like never before. And, and it makes people curious. How can you handle, how can you be joyous in such an awful situation? How can you be patient when I would be losing my mind? It's because the Spirit of God is working in my life. It's because of what Jesus is doing within me. The Holy Spirit will make you more like Jesus. It will make you live like no other human being has ever lived before. It's a beautiful promise. The third thing that the Holy Spirit will do is it will give you boldness to talk about Jesus. There's this awesome passage in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John have been threatened by the religious leaders. They've been arrested and they've been threatened not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they let them go and they go back to the church, not the building. I'm talking about the place where the people of God are gathering. And they gather together. And you know what they do? have a prayer meeting. And you know what they don't pray for? They don't pray for safety. They don't pray for deliverance. What Luke tells us is they prayed for more boldness. These guys had just been arrested. They're going to be beaten. 
They're being threatened. Their life could end. And you know what they pray for? They pray for more boldness. And not just them, the entire church. The entire church says, God, give us more boldness so that we can all go out and we can proclaim the truth of Jesus. No matter what happens to us, give us boldness. And the prayer was so bold that the place where they were at was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you prayed for boldness? I know I'm guilty in my own life of just praying for safety. God, keep us safe. Grant us with safety. But when's the last time we prayed for boldness? Could it be that we could pray so boldly that the place that we're at was shaken? And if not the actual place, that our own lives were shaken so much, that we were filled with God's Spirit so much, that we walked out and we said, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I will give my life to share this good news about this life-giving Savior who offers this life-giving spirit so that you can live like no other human has ever lived before. You can have hope like no one else on this planet has. This is the gospel. This is what the Holy Spirit offers to us. When you're in a moment where you say, I don't know if I should speak up. I don't know if I should share the good news right now. I don't know if I should offer to pray for them. What you need to do is you need to pray for boldness and God will grant your prayer. And you'll find yourself living with an excitement and a zeal you had never imagined. Fourth thing is that the Holy Spirit will guarantee your salvation. If you've ever bought a car, bought a house, you probably had to put some kind of down payment on that purchase. What you're doing by putting that money down is you're saying, I will keep my end of the bargain. We're going to enter into a contract and I'm placing something down, an investment of sorts to say, I will follow through what I say I'm going to do. And what Paul's going to tell us, what Paul's going to tell you in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God has given his spirit to us as a down payment. It's a guarantee of our salvation. God's going to do what he said he's going to do. God's going to redeem you and save you. And he's placed his spirit within you as the guarantee of that salvation. And what that means is that no one can take your salvation from you. Yes, you can walk away from it, but no one can take it from you. Satan can't take your salvation from you. Your parents can't take your salvation from you. No evil person on this planet can take your salvation from you. It is God's guarantee. It is his deposit into your life that he is going to redeem you, that he is going to save you, that he is going to raise you. So what does all this mean for the believer? If you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, here's what this means. Listen to me. You're not normal. I know that's weird to hear. And some of you are like, hey, I've known that for years. People told me that my whole life. No, no, no. If the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, you're not normal. There is nothing normal about the list of things that the Spirit does for us, and that is not a complete and exhaustive list. There is way more that the Spirit of God will do in our life, but it all comes back to it is not normal. There is nothing average about a believer in Jesus. And so every time we try to blend in, we're trying to hide the Spirit of God. Every, try, every time we try to fit in a way that, that is compromising our values, we're trying to hide the Spirit of God. We're trying to quench the Spirit of God from working in our life. So here's what this means. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, there's no more just a Monday. You ever said that before? Somebody asked, how are you doing? Well, doing okay for a Monday. That's out the door, folks, if you're a believer in Christ because there's no more time to waste. We need to be praying for boldness. We need to be filled with an urgency 
to share the gospel of Christ with every person that comes into our life. And that looks different for every person in every situation. It's not always just opening your Bible and sharing the good news like that. Sometimes it's through kind deeds. Sometimes it's through praying for someone. Sometimes it's through showing kindness when the natural part of you doesn't want to. It's through giving sacrificially. Sharing the gospel looks a lot of different ways. Yes, it is opening your Bible and sharing the message of Jesus. Sometimes it's just talking about what God is doing in your life. And sometimes we need to pray for that boldness because there's this part of us that just wants to fit in, that wants to belong. There's no more normal if you're filled with the Spirit of God. It's what he's called us to be. It's why Jesus, even though everybody loved him, he didn't fit in that well because he was different. It wasn't a bad different. It was just so different from what anybody else had ever experienced because it was the way that God designed people to live. It was living without the guilt sin hanging over your life. That's what God is offering you. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, I hope you hear the invitation of Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, if you've gone to all those other places looking for life and you've come back thirsty, wanting more, what you're looking for is found in Jesus. He will infuse your life today with his life-giving spirit where you can be truly quenched and satisfied and you can experience life like you never have before. That is the invitation of Jesus. And if we can help you in any way, if you're ready to give your life to him, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, we want to help you with that. If there's anything we can do for you, won't you let us know as we stand and sing?